over the announcements real quick. Uh, this event on Sunday night is really going to be a great event. I mean, I just have to pull up my Barnum and Bailey promotion routine here to impress everybody with how uh, how great this is going to be. And Yoram is one of the most highly respected uh, speakers in the in the Jewish community, his background in, in business, and he is a consultant to both the Knesset and to various uh, committees in Congress on a lot of trade issues between Israel and, uh, and the U.S., and he is one of the most uh, uh, knowledgeable people that I know uh, on, on current events in, in, in Israel, and so he's going to be speaking on on uh, touching on a number of these different things, primarily focusing on the importance of the U.S.-Israel alliance. But he is, uh, he is uh, you're going to really, really uh, enjoy him. We now have, I'm expecting 130 to 150 people. We're getting all of a sudden to the last minute. It's been summer. We, we get, we've been getting RSVPs at the rate of about 10 to 20 a day the last couple of days. So uh, it's going to be a big crowd. And this is... Uh, and the other night I went to an event, an APAC event, and talked to a number of people about it. And the level of gratitude and appreciation expressed uh, by those in the Jewish community for a ch- Christian church to do something like this is—it's—it's it's overwhelming to see to see their response to just the fact that we're we're doing this. Sometimes I think some of my Jewish friends are a lot more grace-oriented than many of my Christian friends. It's just uh, unbelievable. So um, this is a great opportunity and a great t- opportunity for uh, just to have a general testimony to them uh, at this at this particular time. So I encourage you to uh, to be here. You'll learn a lot, and it'll be a uh, an uh, interesting evening. Okay, uh, we also have the men's prayer breakfast. That we're getting some more response on that. As well, and I'm, I may get some more input tomorrow morning because several of the pastors who bring people uh, will be at that breakfast. Uh, will, will be meeting with me in the morning, so I may have an update on that. But that's at 7:30 with Rick Miller, uh, State Representative Rick Miller, Saturday morning. So busy weekend, and then we have, of course, the CEF training coming up on September uh, September the 7th. A lot of opportunities, a lot of things that we're doing, which is, which is good, keeping everybody busy, focused on different things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so very grateful that we can come together this evening to fellowship around your word, to focus upon your plan and purposes for redemption uh, and your plan for the human race. Father, we're thankful for your grace in so many different areas. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, have healing mercies upon Jim Burney. We continue to pray for him and Norris and pray for him as he's back in the hospital again and and just uh, that you'd give the doctors wisdom and that as he goes to this intermediate care facility that that he would be able to get the nourishment he needs to regain his strength. And, uh, Father, we just pray for your uh, opportunities for them to be a witness and testimony to those around them. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to study your word. What a tremendous privilege it is that we have 
have your word, the completed canon of Scripture before us in a in a good translation that we can understand and that we can reflect upon who you are and what you provided for us. Now, Father, as we study tonight, as we reflect upon your righteousness and your plan for the human race and why your plan for Israel is a righteous plan, we pray that we might understand these things and be strengthened and encouraged in our own understanding of the overall scope of history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in Romans 9, so turn with me there to Romans chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 5. Romans chapter 9, verse 5, just to remind ourselves of the little bit of the context. We started uh, getting into this last week, and I began by pointing out how Romans is a book about the righteousness of God, and a response might be from uh, Jews at the time, and Paul is answering this as if there were an objector who presented this question, how can you say that God is righteous and faithful if God seems to have left the Jews behind and he's shifting to a plan for the church? The answer is that God is only temporarily setting aside his plan for Israel, that it is not a permanent setting aside, but that God has a still has a plan for the Jewish people, still has a plan for Israel, and this will come to completion at some future point in history. He's going to point out the fact that that within Israel there's a distinction between those who are merely ethnic Jews, those who are merely uh, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who are both physical Jews as well as regenerate. They are believers in the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the term Mashiach, which means anointed one, is translated as Messiah. It's translated into Greek as Christos from the Greek word Creo, which means anointed one. So Christos, or when we say Jesus Christ, in Hebrew that's Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua is the Hebrew for Jesus. It's the same name as Joshua, and HaMashiach is just the Messiah. So Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christos in the Greek, is saying the same thing, Jesus the Messiah. We looked at Romans 9.5. Paul says, related to Israel, of whom, that is, uh, from the patriarchs, from the source of the patriarchs, or the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh. Now, that's a key term. That's why, just one reason I wanted to go back to started this verse. According to the flesh here has a simple meaning of in terms of physical descent. Okay, we're going to get into these terms, children of the flesh, in just a minute. According to the flesh has a sense of, of according to human or physical descent. The word flesh is a term that many times Paul uses it to describe the seat of the sin nature, which is in uh, the physical human body, the, the genetic structure, the genetic coding of the human race due to Adam's original sin. But in other cases, the word flesh simply talks, talks about our physical mortal uh, body, and that's what it's talking about here. So Christ, came, Christ, according to the flesh, was Jewish. He was in that line of descent. And then Paul gets to the heart of his uh, focus here in verse 6. But it is not the, that the word of God has taken no effect. In other words, it's not that God has been ignored or that his plan somehow for Israel has been uh, been rejected or nullified. It says, uh, for they are not Israel who are of Israel. This is his first explanation of the principle. And so last time I put this diagram on the board, the blue reflects all ethnic Israel. That, And we have to be careful of some terms here, so I'm going to go over them again and again to make sure we, we understand them. Ethnic Israel refers to those who have physical descent through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, if you have a descent from Abraham alone, then you may not be Jewish because there, Abraham had a son, Ishmael, through uh, Hagar, the, the Egyptian slave girl. That's not the line of the seed. So if you're descended from Ishmael, which, and they were called Ishmaelites in the Old Testament, they've kind of blended in with the various Arab tribes. And so the Ishmaelites and many of the Edomites have all been sort of absorbed into the various Arab 
Arab uh, groups now, but they are descendants of Abraham or they're descendants of Abraham and Isaac, but they're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what defines a an Israelite by the flesh, descended of all three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not enough to get into heaven. See, in the first century, in the, towards the end of the second temple period, the emphasis is from the Pharisees, who were the biblicists of the day, if you would, they were the conservatives. They weren't really, uh, they, they weren't accurate in their interpretation of scripture. They had become excessively legalistic and they had the basic assumption that if you were a physical descendant of Abraham, that gave you special spiritual status before God. As long as you were a Jew, then you would get into heaven if you were a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Basically, all Jews are saved on the merits of Abraham uh, and the patriarchs. And then they might add to that because there were different groups that emphasized different things. So it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, theology that you had to have personal righteousness. That's why they emphasize the overt ritual so much. But as Jesus continuously pointed out, it was all on the surface. He called them whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, they're beautiful like a whitewashed tomb. And in Israel, you go to the graveyards and you have the, the, the above-ground sepulchers and they're made out of that white Jerusalem uh, limestone and they look so... Uh, uh, so white and clean, but inside it's just corruption. It's dead men's bones. And that's the point of the imagery that Jesus uses when he says they're just like whitewashed sepulchers. They're very clean on the outside and filthy on the inside. There's no internal uh, regenera- regeneration or cleansing uh, by the Holy Spirit. So there's they're 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 dead on the inside. They're, they look good on the outside, but they're spiritually dead on the inside. Now, their emphasis was on works, but the works produced by someone who's spiritually dead are dead works. They have no value whatsoever. It may be moral or ethical righteousness, but it has no value before God. It's relative righteousness. It's not doesn't ever measure up to God's standard. Pharisees, some Pharisees also excluded completely Gentiles from salvation. In fact, the, even the idea of taking the gospel to the Gentiles was such that in Acts twenty-two twenty-one, which we haven't gotten to in our Acts study, but when Paul returns to Jerusalem and begins to tell them what God is doing, and he's speaking to the crowd because there's been this huge crowd gathered around Paul because they've heard these rumors that Paul is is telling the Jews around the empire where he goes that they don't have to obey the law of Moses and they don't have to show respect for their traditions or any of these other things, that when when Paul gets to the point that God told him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, they just exploded in a riot. That's what set them off, was taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so they have this exclusionary viewpoint uh, when it comes to what God's blessing upon them. And so they, they really believed that just being a Jew was all that was needed in order to, uh, have, have merit before God. But as, uh, Peter points out to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, God is no respecter of persons. This was not something that the Pharisees had come to understand. So there's a distinction. Just because you were Jewish didn't mean you got into heaven. The blessing of God meant that God was choosing Abraham and his descendants through whom he would provide revelation through the, in terms of the scriptures. They would be custodians of the scripture to preserve it and to pass it on. And it was through the line of the seed that God's promised Messiah would come. And so it didn't guarantee them salvation, but guaranteed that they would be the ones through whom salvation to the world would come. So Paul says in Romans 9, 6, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, 
for they are not all Israel who are Israel. They are not all... Remember, Israel got his name when he's contending with God and perseveres in the wrestling match with God in, um, at Peniel. And the angel of the Lord ends up uh, slapping him on the hip and he makes him a partial cripple for a while. And that, that this is, he's given the new name of Israel, one who contends or perseveres with God. And so what, what Paul's saying here, they're not all Israel, that is, they're not all contenders with God who are from the one who contended with God, who are, who is uh, Israel or the alternate name for uh, Jacob. Then he says in verse 7, nor are they all children. What he's doing, now that you read this, and I can understand why some people would do this. It's a little confusing in the English. But when you read this, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children. There are a number of commentators who read this as if verse 7 is a further explanation of what it means that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's not what's going on here. He's making a, a his, his initial statement here is to explain this distinction, that there are some who are ethnic Israel, some who are ethnic Israel and regenerate. They are, they are true, the true Israel of God. Now, he's going to go on then and take some time to explain, first of all, the significance of being ethnic Israel and why that's important. And the reason that's important is because of the Abrahamic covenant and that everlasting promise that God made to Abraham. (coughs) That's the first thing. Second thing, and he doesn't get into this until he starts getting into chapter 10, he's going to deal with the aspect of those who are true Israel of Israel. So most of what's coming up in the next few verses is just focusing on identifying who ethnic Israel is, defining a a true physical ethnic Jew and why why that's important. So he says in verse 7, nor, they all, nor are they all children. So he adds something. This is ascending uh, argumentation. He starts with one principle. They're not all Israel who are Israel. Then he goes not to something that explains that further, but is stated in addition to that, neither are they all children. Uh, because they are the seed of Abraham. And we have to carefully understand this. What does he mean by children? Now, if you look at these verses in your Bible, you ought to circle the word children as you go through these verses. Uh, verse 7 says, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, verse 8 leads to an explanation those who are the children, there you circle that term again, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So what does he mean by that? But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So you have about four important terms. What does he mean by just the statement children alone in verse 7? What is this concept of the seed? That's your second. It's mentioned in verse 7, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. It's mentioned as those counted as the seed at the end of verse 8. Verse 9 says, for this is the word of of promise. So we have the the children of the promise equal the children the children of the seed and the promise of the seed when you connect the dots at the end of verse 8 and beginning of verse 9. So it looks something like this. In 9-7, when Paul says, nor are they all children, he defines that simply as being of the seed of Abraham. So he talks about a broad concept. All of the seed of Abraham refers to all of his physical descendants, the descendants through Ishmael, the descendants through the sons of Keturah, the Midianites and others, and the descendants of Isaac, which is the line of the seed. So he's saying um, 
you're not considered a child, and here he's really talking about a child of the promise, which is the full term he uses in verse 8. You're not really talking about the child of the promise uh, just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham. Because he quotes in verse 7, he quotes from Genesis uh, 21.12, and Isaac, your seed, shall be called. So it's very specific from Genesis 21.12 that the line of the seed goes from Abraham through Isaac. And Isaac, your seed, shall be called. So you have this distinction. There, there, there's non-children who are physical descendants and the children of the promise who are the physical descendants through Isaac. Verse 8, he says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So now we have two other terms that are coming up here, children of the flesh, and they are not the children of God. Now, as we read this at our first glance, it appears that children of God would be a term related to how it's used in some other places related to those who are saved, those who are regenerate, those who are justified. But that doesn't fit the context because he's not talking about saved versus unsaved. He's talking about identifying the true physical line of Abraham. What is the line of the seed? So you have the children of the flesh are equivalent to the non-seed descendants of Abraham. Okay? So the children of the flesh are the children that come through uh, th- through his humanity with uh, Ishmael, either by way of Hagar through Ishmael or by way of his second wife, Keturah. Remember, Abraham had two wives, uh, Sarah first. When she died, he married Keturah and had other sons and daughters with Keturah. But after... Um, But Hagar was not a wife. She's a concubine. And there was a legal distinction between a wife and a concubine. So Abraham is not a polygamist. He may be a fool. He may have listened to his wife when he shouldn't have. He may have created a huge problem by uh, doing so. But he wasn't a polygamist. Sometimes in the polygamy argument, some people say, well, look, you know, all the, the, the patriarchs of the Bible were, were, polygamous and God allowed it. Jacob was the only one that had multiple wives and that was due to the carnality of Laban and his and and his own complicity. And it wasn't a good thing. Never is it was even though there were various uh there there weren't a lot, but there were some that had multiple wives in the Old Testament. It's never portrayed as a positive thing. It's always portrayed as a as a reflection of the influence of pagan culture. So we have the children of the flesh, and this refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, uh, either Ishmael or the sons of Keturah, or later Isaac in terms of Esau. That's the children of the flesh. And these are not the children of God. Now, why does he call them children of God? Well, first of all, we see that the children of God are equivalent. That's a phrase that means the same thing as the children of the promise. But why are they called the children of God? Well, this goes back to understanding something I've taught in the past called the doctrine of the barren woman. There were six barren women in Scripture. The first three are the ones we're concerned with here, and that's Sarah, Rebecca, or Rivka, and Rachel, Rachel. Those three were all barren. It's not because of any sort of divine discipline or punishment, but is to demonstrate the power of God to bring life where there was death, that the birth of the Jewish people was a miracle. God regenerated the physical womb of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel in order to give birth to their children. It was a it was God who made it possible for them to have children. So they are called children of God because of that uh that supernatural uh miracle that was part of their birth. So those who are the children of the flesh or the just the the physical descendants 
not the line of the seed. These are not the children of God because the children of God refers to those who were the result of a divine miracle. Uh, but it's the, then he says, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, the children of the promise is a specific term that relates to the Abrahamic promise in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 18 to or, or 17 to eight, excuse me Genesis 18 10, 10 and uh, 14 where God specified that a son would be born to Sarah that the son the seed that he had promised to Abraham would come through uh, would come through Abraham and Sarah not not a surrogate uh, through his uh, his servant back in Genesis chapter uh, 15 through Eliezer and not through uh, Hagar, but it would come through Abraham and Sarah. So that's the children of the promise. The children of God, therefore, is not a term for regeneration, but for those born through divine intervention through the barren mothers. And then this is further clarified in the next verse, Romans 9, 9, where Paul says, For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is from Genesis 18, 10, and 14. So that's the promise. The children of the promise are Isaac, first of all, and then Jacob, uh, when uh, Rebecca gives birth to the twins, Esau and Jacob, Jacob is the one who's designated to be the the, the one who will uh, carry the line of the seed because the elder, Esau, would serve the younger, which is Jacob. We'll get into that in this study. So we see this in uh, several different passages, and so what I want to do now is take us back to Genesis to pick up this thread and to see how all of this sort of fits together. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Again, this is one of those passages and verse verse kind of string-alongs that we're going to do where you should be writing in your margin uh, references so that when we go from Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and we turn the page and we go to Genesis chapter um, we're going to look at Genesis chapter, hit a verse in Genesis 13, and then in Genesis chapter 15. You can write these references down and follow along at some later time if you have your Bible and you're talking to somebody, you have those little cross-references written in your Bible. In Genesis 12.1, God makes a shift in the way he has worked with the human race. Up to this point, he's worked through all the human race. There's no significant racial distinction. All are Gentiles. But now God is going to call out one particular human being, and it is through him that there is going to be a special blessing for the entire human race. And he makes certain promises to him. And there is a, this is not a covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, but it's a summary of the covenant that will come, and it's God's initial promise to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham at this time is known simply as Avram, and he lives in Ur of the Chaldees, and so God comes to him. Avram is already a believer. He is already understands the gospel. God is not just coming to him and saying, well, if you do this, you're going to be saved. He's already justified. And now God is giving him special blessing because of Abram's uh, love for God and, and his spiritual maturity and God's own sovereign choice. It's not something Abraham has earned. It is that God has chosen this out of his sovereignty and out of his omniscience. He says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Key component of the promise is the land. I will make you a great nation. That indicates the descendants, the seed. I will bless you and make your name great. God promises personal blessing to Abram and that he will become famous and his name will be known. And then he says, you shall be, and that's really a command, you shall be a blessing. I'm doing all this so that you will be a blessing to others. And then verse 3 is the key verse. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the core of the 
uh, Abrahamic covenant, a promise of land, a promise of descendants or seed, and a promise of wor- to be a worldwide blessing. The land part is reaffirmed at verse 7. To your, the Lord appeared to Abram. By this time, Avram and, and uh, Sarah have moved down into the land, and they're uh, at Shechem near the oak tree of Morah. And uh, God appears to him and says, To your descendants I will give this land. And Avram builds an altar to the Lord at that particular point. Then he moves on down further south into the land. Uh, later on, we see some. Uh, he leaves to go to Egypt uh, during a time of famine, and then he returns, and there's a conflict between Lot's uh, cattlemen and uh, Abram's cattlemen, and the Lord uh, gives separates them, and then the Lord appears to uh, Abram again, verse 14 of chapter uh, 13. And the Lord said to Avram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants. When you see that word descendants in the Hebrew, that seed, and that's the important, that's what we're tracing all through Genesis. That's why you have the genealogies, is you're tracing the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15 down through uh, the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 and then through the genealogies of Genesis chapter 11. And all of this is so that you document that, that when the Messiah comes, his lineage can be traced all the way back from one generation to the next, all the way back to Adam. And so this is what, actually this is what Luke does in his, in his genealogy uh, in Luke chapter 4. So we see the covenant for the land reiterated again in uh, Genesis 13, 15 through 17. Then we'll skip over to Genesis chapter 15. This is the key covenant passage. God comes to him and says, Don't be afraid, Avram, in verse 1. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Avram says, Lord God, what will you? What, how will I do this? Uh, should the heir come through Eliezer of Damascus? See, this is his first operation in the flesh. And there's a, the contrast here is I'm going to do God's work my way in the power of the flesh, my own ability without relying upon God. And Abram's first option is to do it with, through Eliezer, his servant. But God says to him, though it's going to be one of your own offspring, uh, this one's not going to be your heir. That's in verse 4. And then God reiterates that his descendants, his seed, will be like the stars of the heaven uh, if you're able to uh, count them at the end of verse 5, so shall your descendants be. And then uh, verse 9 through the end of the chapter is where we have the actual covenant-cutting ceremony itself, where uh, after all this conversation with God must have been pretty intense, uh, it's time for Avram to take a little nap. So after he goes out and he gathers up the animals for the sacrifice and kills them, and then splits them in two. That's a lot of work. If any of you have ever been hunting and you shot a deer or you shot a wild pig, anything like that, to uh, eviscerate, clean the animals, and then to uh, split them in two, this is a lot of work. So Abram needs a little nap, so God causes him to go to sleep. And then God alone passes between the two halves of the sacrifice. Now, that's what's so important because normally if you are going to cut a covenant with somebody and it's an extremely significant contract and you want to bind both parties to the contract, then you would split the sacrifices and both parties signing the contract would walk between the sacrifices. But God puts Abram to sleep and God alone passes through uh, passes between the halves of the sacrifices, showing that this is a unilateral, one-sided covenant. God is binding himself to the covenant regardless of what Abraham does. It is a one-sided covenant that makes it, and it's an eternal covenant. Usually we use terms like conditional or unconditional, but there were conditions attached with every covenant, but it doesn't have to do with its ultimate fulfillment. Uh, but to enjoy the blessings of the land, the Jews had to be obedient. That was a condition. But it, if they were disobedient, it didn't negate the Abrahamic covenant. So better terms that we use are eternal versus 
temporary or permanent versus temporary. That's what the writer of Hebrews emphasizes in uh, Hebrews chapter 8 when he talks about the new covenant, that the old covenant was temporary and designed to be temporary. That's the Mosaic covenant. And that's why the new covenant is called the new covenant because it indicates that the old covenant wasn't supposed to be permanent. So this is the, really a better biblical category for understanding these, these covenants is permanent versus uh, temporary. And the only temporary covenant in scripture was the Mosaic covenant. Okay. So God cuts the covenant with Abram in chapter 15. It's still got the promise of the seed. And in chapter 16, we get Operation Flesh, paragraph 2. This is when Sarai has a better idea, and she suggests that uh, Abram take her concubine as a, um, as, as a substitute and that through, through Hagar he will have a child. And so some years have gone by since chapter 15, and she's getting impatient, and so she wants to have a surrogate uh, pregnancy through Hagar. And so uh, 10 years have gone by since the previous revelation from God, and so Abram goes into uh, uh, Hagar, and, has, and she conceives and gives birth to a son, Ishmael. Now, if you take the time to look at Galatians 4, 21 to 31, we're not going to take the time tonight to do that, but in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, Paul develops this as a picture of the of Abraham in the terms of the work of the flesh. And there Paul is now adding a layer of interpretation to it in terms of Abram trying to complete God's plan on the basis of his own works and not waiting upon the... Uh, miraculous grace of God to supply a, a, a son, as God had promised. And so this is a work of the flesh, and according to Galatians uh, 4, 21 to 31, we now add a layer of meaning to the flesh, not just according to the physical descent, but also the idea of human, based on human works. Now that's not, that doesn't sit well with the pharisaical inclination of the Jews, because now what Paul is saying and implying is that physical descent from Abraham isn't good enough. And it didn't apply to anyone, uh, it didn't apply to Ishmael at all. That was a work, that was a mistake and a sin on part of Abram because he wasn't trusting in, in, in God. So we come to chapter 17. Another 13 years goes by. That's that's a long time. Uh, you think back about when West Houston Bible Church started. We started about nine years ago. Um, I moved back not quite eight years ago. We haven't come close to 13, 10 or 13 years, so that's a long period of time. Combination 23 years, finally, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, we have the sign of the covenant given, which is circumcision. Abraham is 99 years old. Uh, Ishmael is 13, and this is when Abraham uh, and uh, Ishmael are circumcised, a sign of the covenant that God has established with them. And in Genesis 17:19, God sa- st- says that, announces to, Sarah, uh, to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant. That's that idea of a permanent covenant, an eternal covenant that won't ever be abrogated. And with his descendants, with his seed after him. So this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 when he says that uh, the, the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The children of the promise refers to Isaac and that line, and it'll go from Isaac and then to, uh, then to Jacob. So this is God's sovereign choice as he takes them through, um, that blessing. Now Galatians 3.14 states that the, that, that this was done, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ. Abraham was called so that all the nations would be blessed through him, Genesis 13.3. This flew in the face of rabbinic theology during the Second Temple period. They thought that, that they were excluding the Gentiles completely, looked down on the Gentiles. 
But Paul says the blessing of Abraham, this, the crucifixion of Christ was done, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then a couple of verses later, Paul says, and this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, that is 430 years, the Mosaic law came 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. So the, the Mosaic covenant cannot nullify the eternal covenant of Abraham. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it's no longer a promise. That's the key. Now, Romans 9.10. Let's go back to Romans. We're going to be moving around from Romans into these Old Testament passages. So Romans 9, 8, and 9 focus on the promise of the seed through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And then in verse 10 we read, And not only this, but when Rivka also had conceived by one man, even by our father Yitzhak. Okay? Isaac, Yitzhak in the Hebrew, which means laughter because Sarah had laughed to herself when God said, Sarah's going to give birth to a child another year. And she's going, man, I'm an old woman. There's no way. But God found a way. So now we have the word of promise continues through Rebekah, Rivka in the Hebrew. Uh, not only this, but when Rivka also had conceived by one man, even by our father Yitzhak, and she conceives and she's got twins. For the children are not yet born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Now, the emphasis here, two things we need to recognize. Number one, this is not talking about the individuals of Jacob and Esau. It's not, it's not focusing on them as individuals. It's focusing on them as nations. We'll see that in a minute when we go back to, to uh, Genesis. Second thing we need to know is that the, Paul makes it a point saying that the children haven't been born yet, nor have they done any good or evil. Now, there's two ways that people can handle this. One is by trying to argue that some level of prescience, God's choosing them because of some sort of foreknowledge. Well, when, when Paul adds this idea that they haven't done good or evil yet, he's precluding the idea that somehow this is based on anything that they do or might do. It's based on God's choice. But God's choice is not random. God's choice is not arbitrary. Just because we're not told what God's choice is doesn't mean it's arbitrary or without basis or reason. But it's not, doesn't have anything to do with their personal salvation or their individual justification. It has to do with God's oversight of history and how he is working out his plan of salvation through the descendants, through the seed of Abraham. So the issue here has nothing to do with salvation, but it has to do with the purpose of God in his redemption plan for mankind, and it's according to his election or his choice. God has the right to raise up nations and to bring down nations, to raise up leaders and to take down leaders, and to choose different people for different functions or purposes. This isn't a violation of their volition at all. And it certainly doesn't violate their volition in terms of salvation. As I pointed out last time, I believe that both Ishmael and Esau were believers. Now, some people don't think that, but the evidence is real shoddy. In both cases, God promises to richly bless both Ishmael and Esau, and they were richly blessed by God. But this promise here that we see in the next verse, that the older shall serve the younger, never never worked itself out in the lives of the two individuals of Esau and Jacob. Didn't work that out that way at all because the older is Esau 
And Esau personally never served Jacob. In fact, it was Jacob when he returns from his uh, extended stay in the north in Haran where he is uh, working for his uh, father-in-law Laban and his distant relative. Uh, when he comes back, he's afraid that because Esau was breathing threats of murder when he left, that Esau still wants to kill him. And, and God has so richly blessed Esau while he's gone that Esau doesn't care what Jacob has or about his possessions. Esau is very happy. He's thrilled to see Jacob when he returns. He treats him with much grace when he returns. And it is Jacob who bows at the feet of Esau. It is Jacob who's concerned about uh, that, that maybe Esau... Tell you, if anybody's serving anybody, it's Jacob serving Esau. He, he puts himself in that role, role of subservience when he returns, uh, returns home and returns to the land. So it's, the, the reason I'm pointing this out is this shows that it's not talking about the persons or the individuals, and this is often distorted and abused within, uh, within Roman, uh, uh, I mean, excuse, excuse me, within Calvinistic theology. And then in verse 13 we read, Paul says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this is a verse that has caused great confusion to a lot of people. God hated somebody. How can God hate Esau? See, this is part of the problem that we as Westerners often have. It's a problem of Western civilization, culture being different from a Jewish uh, Middle Eastern culture, and it's also a language issue because we don't understand the metaphors and the uh, the imagery that is often used in Hebrew. And so you, if we read this as an English speaker, we might read this as as one person who's loved and the other person as despised. But that's not how the Hebrew idioms work, and that's not how they spoke. And I'm going to give you an example of this. In Genesis 29, 30 and 31, this is when after, after working for 14 years, Jacob finally gets the love of his life, uh, Rachel, Rachel, and uh, he marries Rachel. And we're told in Genesis 29, 30, he also loved Rachel more than Leah. That's, that's what hate means, to lo- be loved less than someone else, Okay. Look at the context. He loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and in the Hebrew the word is hate. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. See, Jacob didn't hate Leah. He just didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. But that's how the idiom works is if someone's not loved as much, then they're hated. That's the idiom. That's the language. It doesn't mean that they're despised or found to be obnoxious or any of those things. It's simply they're not loved as much. It's an idiom for expressing acceptance and approval above someone else. So someone gets an A+, plus, the next person gets an A, the person that gets the A is hated, the person who gets the A+, plus is loved. Okay? So... This is, this is, shows from the text how this concept of hate and love works. Now let's turn back to Genesis. We're going to look at two passages in the Old Testament. We have to understand these, these stories. And it's so important today for people to read through their Bible and know the stories, understand these, these episodes and just get the, the main, the main characters down. Uh, Genesis chapter 25, look at verse 22. Genesis 25:22 this is talking about uh when uh Rebecca uh becomes uh pregnant verse 20 Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca his wife the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padan Aram the sister of Laban the Syrian see all that data you read and you you just want to sleep your way through the genealogies but that's God is telling us look I can trace the line the genealogical line from Adam to Jesus and proved that this is, this is my Messiah. And so all these little details are put into the text for that reason. Verse 21, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. 
See, once again, you've got to have a miracle, divine intervention for Rebecca to get pregnant. The Lord granted his plea, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she's saying, Lord, I'm having this rough pregnancy, and these two babies in here are fighting with each other all the time. i got a wrestling match going on in my stomach all the time. She wants to know what is wrong. And um, she inquires of the Lord. In verse 23 we read, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Right there we know he's not talking about individuals from from the perspective of the divine pronouncement of of his plan for these people. He's focusing on the descendants, the, what's the word? The seed of Esau and the seed of, of Jacob. It says, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older, that's, uh, that's Esau, shall serve the younger. So this is what c- comes out. Now, a lot of people get the idea that Esau was just a bad, bad guy. He's, he's because of one negative episode, uh, that occurs in, uh, Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 27. And this is when Esau, who's a hunter, he's an outdoorsman, he likes to go out and camp. Uh, he would have been a great advocate of the Second Amendment. And he goes out and he is, uh, uh, he's out, but Jacob is more of a mama's boy. And he's a, he's, he's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's always got to figure out his own angle in order to get what's coming to him. See, from the very beginning, God promised that the older would serve the younger. Well, Jacob wants to be the one to make that happen. He's not going to trust God. He's got the operation flesh going on, just like Abraham did, and he wants to try to make it work for himself. So rather than letting God handle things in terms of the inheritance, he follows the uh, advice of his mother, and his mother says, okay, while Esau's out hunting, we're going to disguise you. We're going to put on a, uh, some, uh, a lamb skin, goat skin over you, and we're go- you're going to, uh, then you'll feed, when uh, Isaac, who can't see real well anymore, when he feels you, you'll, you'll be hairy like Esau, and uh, I'll fix his favorite food, and you take it into him. And then uh, uh, when he does that, then you ask him for his blessing to get the, uh, to get the inheritance. And so he, he goes through all of that and he gets the blessing from, uh, from Isaac. And as soon as this finished, uh, Esau came in. This is in verse 30. And he's also been out. He's killed a, an animal, some game animal, and he's made uh, dinner for his father and brought it in. And now he asks his father to, to bless him. And he says to Isaac in verse 32, uh, Isaac says to him, who are you? And he says, I'm your son, your firstborn Isaac. And he said, what? wait, wait, wait a minute. Who was that who just came in here and brought me all the food? I gave him the blessing. This was an irreversible thing in their, uh, in their culture. And so Esau cries out um, uh, with a loud voice and cries out for a blessing. So he gets a blessing but not the double blessing, uh, double blessing of the, of the firstborn. And then he goes to another episode where he uh, is comes in, he's come in from hunting and he's hungry, and so he wants to uh, sell his birthright to Jacob for just a mess of of, of red lentil stew. So he he treats it as if it's not not significant and not important, and so uh, as a result of this, uh, there's a there he he becomes a picture of a of someone who treats their inheritance and their birthright in a cavalier or uh, manner or manner of disrespect, and there's a warning because of that in Hebrews chapter 12 says the writer of Hebrews says looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It means that in that you're not operating on the basis of God's grace and depending upon him, uh lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And see this is what happens when um when Esau 
realizes how he's been tricked, that he's given up his birthright for a mess of pottage, for, for the lentil soup and everything, then he becomes very angry and bitter towards Jacob. This is uh, Genesis 27:41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. In other words, he's going to die soon. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so this is the bitterness that's in his heart. And so this has an impact on others. How does it have an impact on others? Well, uh, Rebecca is fearful for Jacob, and so uh, she makes a plan for him to flee to her uh, brother Laban in Haran in verse 43, and that's what he does. And for the next uh, 20 years, he's going to be with working for Laban for the next 21 years. He's up there before he can return home, and by then his mother's died, and uh, his father's died, and he's he's it's had a terrible impact. So because of this sin of Esau's, verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Now, he's not saying Esau's a fornicator. It is saying that it says, example one, lest anyone be a fornicator or immoral person, or a profane person, someone who treats the grace of God with disrespect, like Esau. Esau is the example of someone who treated the grace of God with disrespect, who for one morsel of food, the bowl of lentil soup, sold his birthright. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In other words, he he repented, and there was emotion along with it, but it was too late. There were consequences to his bad choice and to his sin, and so he reaped the consequence of that. But none of this indicates that he wasn't uh, uh, wasn't a believer or wasn't blessed by God, for he uh, he certainly was blessed by God, and 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 many other ways over the coming years. So when we look at Romans uh, Romans 9, then Paul is developing this argument that the line of the seed goes from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. And then we have this statement uh, defining it for Esau, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that comes from Malachi. That comes from Malachi chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Malachi chapter 2. Uh, verse 1, or excuse me, Malachi 1, 2, I'm getting dyslexic, I can't even say it in my old age. Okay, Uh, Malachi, when was Malachi written? This is something with just a little historical background. Malachi is written, it's the last book of the Old Testament to be written. It's written after the return of the Jews to the land. They come back, this is called the post-exilic period because it's after the exile. The exile began in 586 B.C. with the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and the Jews are removed from the land, not every single one of them, but most of them. And that was, there were actually three deportations by Nebuchadnezzar, 605, 596, and, and uh, 586, uh, um, uh, B.C., and then at the end of the exile, they're returned by Cyrus in 538. This is referred to over here. 538, Cyrus, edict to return. 536, you have the first return under Zerubbabel uh, to build the temple, and there's just only about a handful, 40,000 or so, that returned at this particular time. They uh, begin to rebuild the temple. They have it, it, the, it's a much smaller temple than what they had under under uh, Solomon. And finally, they completed about 515. This is the time of Haggai and and uh, Zechariah, and these are called Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are called the post-exilic prophets. Last three prophets in the Old Testament. Real easy to remember, the last three are after the exile, and the last one is really the Italian prophet Malachi. So turn to Malachi. It's one of those pages in your Bible that's still pretty much white because you haven't been there very much. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. This is where it starts off, The burden of the Lord 
to Israel by Malachi. This is a time when God is sending a rebuke to the nation because of their uh, assimilation to paganism. All through this, this time period, you have these are the various Persian kings. This is during the time of Artaxerxes. But this is uh, about the time of the, the uh, third return under Nehemiah. So Malachi is trying to straighten them up because they've been compromising again and assimilating with the pagans, and they need to uh, they need to stand firm. So the date is roughly roughly around 440 to 450 uh, BC. And God says, "I have loved you," says the Lord. Yet you say, you have a whole series of these questions that, that come up. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I just want to hit the first part of it. Is this question that comes up uh, rhetorically, God says, you say, in what way have you loved us? Uh, it sort of reminds me of a line I heard in, um, in, in a movie, a uh, Jewish line, uh, you know, God, why don't you choose somebody else? This is often expressed, I think, by a lot of uh, Jews today. You know, we've suffered so much. God, go choose somebody else. And that's the, what's expressed here. We've gone through all this, this, these horrors in our history. How have you, you say you love us, God? Is this love? Uh, go love somebody else. You, you, yeah. So God, they asked God, in what way have you loved us? Um, and God's response is, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is the quote. Um, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, which comes out of verse 3. But Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. The point that God is making here in this verse is that he brought judgment on Esau, and uh, Esau, the, the descendants of Esau, lived in the southern part of, of, of Judah, and God brought judgment upon them, and as a result, the Edomites became eventually sort of absorbed into uh, Judea, Remember, Herod was the greatest of the Edomites, but the Edomites basically became subservient uh, to the Jews in the Old Testament. And so God is pointing out in these um, verses how he's brought judgment on Edom, but he's restored the Jews to the land after after their judgment. In verse 4, he says, even though Edom has said, we've been impoverished, but uh, but we will return and build, rebuild the holy places, thus so the, says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and, your, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So the point that that God is making here is this is historical evidence that he is the one who chose uh, Jacob and that even though there's times of discipline and there's been times of hardship, God has been faithful to his covenant and his promises to Jacob. And even when he took them out of the land the first time, he's going to bring them back into the land. And Paul is using this as an analogy of what is going on uh, even at the present time when he's writing in the first century, that even though God is bringing discipline again upon the Jews, God is not forget, going to forget his covenant, and he will once again restore them to a p- place of blessing. This is a this is a great illustration of the principle of God's faithfulness to his promise of salvation. If If God were to have forgotten the Jews and to have made a promise to Abraham and then renege on it, then how would we ever have a doctrine of eternal security? But because God is faithful to his promise, and even though we may go through periods of disobedience and we may ignore him completely, God is always faithful to that promise, and he will fulfill the promise to us to bring us to salvation, just as he will never completely turn back on his promise to Israel, and he will eventually fulfill that. Now, next time we'll come back and look at the next important objection that comes up, and he's going to deal with this by going to Mo- to Moses and the Exodus, 
and he's going to deal with the, the, the key passage in verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this person I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and my name may be declared in all the earth. And therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. And this is used by, by Calvinists to show that God just raises up those who will be saved and uh, condemns to perdition those who, who he rejects. And this is how they use this to confirm their doctrine of election and predestination. And we'll continue to see that this has nothing to do with individual salvation or justification, but has once again to do with God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel, and it has to do with his corporate blessing to Israel and nothing whatsoever to do with individual selection for salvation. And we'll get to that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things today, to be encouraged as we're reminded of your faithfulness, your faithfulness to uh, Abraham in your promise to Abraham, your faithfulness to the Jewish people uh, in the Old Testament, that even when they came under your discipline, you never uh, went back on your covenant with them because you are always faithful. Father, we pray that we might be reminded that you're always faithful in your promise to give us eternal salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we it's not dependent upon who we are, what we do, but dependent upon your integrity, your faithfulness, your righteousness, that we might have eternal life as a free gift by grace through faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.